My name is Taylor Jones. I'm the co-founder and VP of Revenue of Pistol Data. I'm proud to work in cannabis because we're making an impact, a real impact on the world. Everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. I'm your host, Carson Humiston, the founder of Vangst. And today I'm very excited to have one of our good friends, somebody that we've known in the industry for a long time. Taylor Jones is the co-founder and VP of Revenue at Pistol Data. And Taylor, we've known each other for, is it six years at this point? Yeah, I think so. Going on six or seven years. It's been, been quite some time. Six or seven years. So we met Taylor in his transition into Baker, but before we get there, Taylor, how did you originally decide to go into cannabis? Like, what were you doing before cannabis and why cannabis in the first place? Totally, so I've always had a, um, a passion for the plant. I think when I graduated college, I went to the University of Kentucky, a fairly conservative state to say the least. Um, cannabis was definitely taboo and I flew out to Colorado in 2014 to attend a 420 event and went to my first dispensary. And that's really when my interest peaked on, on walking into um, a dispensary and kind of understanding how that process was, which was really enlightening at the time. Um, started working in technology for an Oracle partner, doing a lot of stuff around ERP systems and got really interested in how the, the legal cannabis space was operating with ERPs and supply chain software and compliance. Um, I was living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and randomly searched cannabis ERP systems, found a company called Biotrack THC, that was in 2015, um, and that was kind of my entrance into the cannabis space. And what was your, when you, when you joined Biotrack, what was your job? So I was, I was a sales rep, so I was, uh, I was pounding the phones, um, calling on new dispensaries, and at the time, there weren't a lot of softwares out there, right? So you think, like back then, um, even if you can remember some of these, but MJ Freeway, of course, was then before they were a Kerna, Biotrack, and then you slowly started to see companies like Green Bits pop up that was very Washington specific, LeafLogics entered the space. And so I kind of have this like full view of, of the cannabis tech space specifically all the way back in 2014 and how a lot of these companies have evolved. It's been, it's been quite entertaining to watch. Yeah, so in 2014, when you were calling into businesses that were not using any technology, what was the response when you were calling into them and pitching them on using Biotrack? Yeah, so at the, at the time, Biotrack was a server-based solution, meaning you hosted the actual software on your own server or on a computer within your dispensary. And that was very uh, appealing to folks because if they did get raided by the feds, they could take that computer, destroy it, and they, they were really concerned about doing a federally illegal sales um, and actually hosting on the cloud. So a lot of a lot of our pitch at the time was like, you want to own your own data, you want to host your own data. Uh, it's kind of funny to think about that now, just with like where the 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 world is with with cloud services and whatnot. Um, but yeah, the, it was it was interesting. A lot of people were doing it on cash registers, so you know the whole like pin debit or even that wasn't even thought about. It was it was more about you know kind of manually keeping track of this this stuff in a spreadsheet. So. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been cool to watch kind of everything evolve. Isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, that was less than a decade ago, right? <laughs> yeah. There were people who were storing things literally on a server. Like what, just like in the back room? Like I'm having a hard time even picturing something like this. Yeah, yeah. So, so we sold hardware at the time too. We had some hardware partners. So you would like sign up. 
we would, you know, they would buy an extra computer that would be their quote-unquote server. Really, it was just like a, a powered computer, mm -hmm. um, and that hosted the actual BioTrack software. And then, you know, that was kind of like would be in their back room, exactly like you said. So in the event they, and they did, would lock it up. Yeah, they would lock. Yeah. So I think our competitor at the time, being MJ Freeway, they would pitch like, well, couldn't the the, the feds just grab the server? Um, which was fair, but yeah, at the, at the time it was it felt safer for a lot of the kind of you know, sort of gray market operators. If you think California in 2015, it was like legal, but a lot of stores weren't really operating like, you know, according to uh, the actual law. So, and, and what market were you primarily focused on or were you selling into all at the time, right? It really only was Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th those main markets, um, you know, Michigan, Maine, they always had kind of caregiver programs. So there was like, sort of legal, but kind of, you know, hey, you can grow up to 16, 20 plants, but if you have seven patients, you know, you kind of have a, a dispensary in itself. When BioTrack won the, the state traceability contract in 2014, um, you know, a lot of our business was out of Washington at the time with folks just because we were the state system, but also provided commercial software to them. That was kind of our, our hot market at the time. And that was the second state to actually do traceability uh, due to like the James Cole memo, do you re recall that about actually implementing like what does even seed to sale tracking mean? And um, it's kind of interesting if you think about like how states are still implementing track and trace via metric or biotrack or leaf data systems when actually they kind of they threw out the Cole memo. So we'll it'll be interesting to see how that evolves as more legalization happens across across the country. Okay, so then at some point someone from Vangst reaches out to you. So what year is this again, just to orient me on the time? Yeah, so this was um, in the middle of 2017. Okay. Um, someone reached out to me from Vangst. I had moved to Denver in 2016 just to kind of build the network and get into a more legal state. Um, Colorado's better than Florida too, so uh, at least for uh, myself at a certain age. But yeah, I reached out. I met, uh, met Joel Milton, met Carter. Uh, met Jeff Ham, met the whole the team at Baker, and then I actually joined Baker at the very end of the year. And Joel Milton's uh, kind of persuasion to get me to join was, "Hey, we'll take you on our Cabo trip if you sign your offer letter." So my first week at Baker was with their entire team in Cabo. So I don't I don't know if I can ever top that uh, as far as switching jobs. <laughs> and at that time, I think we were all in the same office. Were we all officing out of the WeWork at that time? You were, yeah, you were. So that's where I met, that's where I met the team was at the WeWork and um, so, yeah. That was a very convenient arrangement for Vanks because at the time Baker was an awesome client of ours and we would just walk down the hall and say, hey, we wanna introduce you to this candidate. So when you joined Baker, I'm assuming, I, I think I remember this, I think you were joining Carter's team and you were joining in sales, right? Correct, yeah. So I was, I was doing some sales management for Carter and that was kind of my first management role. Um, they had a pretty large team at the time and a lot of traction already, kind of being first to market from a, like an e-commerce and even text messaging loyalty perspective. So really selling to retailers and, and doing that. And fast forward a year later, about a year and a half, two years later, that's when they, they announced the, the merger and, and listing of, um, of Tilt Holdings. Um, and then when Carter departed, I became the VP of sales at Tilt Holdings. Um, did that for about a year and a half, and that kind of led me back again to Vanks, randomly enough, actually through Carter. She introduced me to my partner now, Jeffrey Graham, um, who had the idea of Pistol, and we, we teamed up and, and started the company. So 
that's my banks has actually helped me twice in my career so i'm forever grateful well it's an awesome story right you went into uh, a sales role then became vp of sales and now have become a co-founder and vp of revenue so talk to us a little bit about like the journey of actually being the co-founder of pistol data and how that was different than joining Biotrack or joining Baker with a more established product in the market. I mean, when you joined, it's so funny, like just having this conversation is such a blast in the past. Like when you joined Baker, Baker had clear product market fit. You guys were a hot tech company. Like everybody wanted to work there. I remember when you guys got your office, it was like, oh my God, they have the best office in the cannabis industry. Like Baker was the place to work. So you would join these I don't know if Biotrack was the place to work with, with the selling of the hardware. I wasn't around at that time. But I do know that when you joined Baker, like, that was awesome. And they, they had a brand. Versus when you joined Pistol Data, it was in its infancy. Now Pistol Data is a really cool place to work. But at the time that you joined, it was very much in its infancy. So what was it like joining a company pre-product market fit, pre-brand, pre-everything? Like, what was that journey like? Yeah, totally. It's, that's a really good point. I think the first question or the first word that comes to mind was, it's a lot harder. Um, so <laughs> that's that's definitely it. I think the one thing that I enjoy the most is is just having more impact on how things how how things kind of are shaped, right? You have a lot of decisions that you make, a lot of little decisions that you make um, early stage that end up affecting long term um, and, and how you go about things. You know, when I met Jeffrey, he had basically the idea, he formulated the idea at a company called NorCal Cannabis Company. We actually spun Pistol out of that. Um, and he was using data tools in the space that you guys are, are probably familiar with, but really trying to do something, create a tool that was really actionable daily for an individual operator, whether that's a sales rep, a retailer, whoever in the space. And when I was the VP of sales at Tilt, I sold products into stores for their, their plant-touching assets in Massachusetts and PA. And I kind of went through that process of like building spreadsheets, looking at e-commerce menus, trying to figure out like, which MSO would buy product for me based on what they were stocking and how they were pricing and discounting it. So when I met Jeffrey and he kind of pitched me the idea, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I was actually would be the end user to this tool. Um, so kind of right out of the gate, even without product market fit, I think in my head I had, I had experienced what the problem we were really out to solve. And that first problem that we identified was like, buyers at stores don't call sales reps fast enough when their products go out of stock. And there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, they're, Retail's hard in cannabis. Things are changing all of the time. There's not a lot of good data that tells you, you know, how much, how many, how much inventory you should be ordering from folks. And if you think about like how many strains and varieties there are of like four main categories: pre-roll, flower, vape, and concentrate. Those are constantly in cycle. And so a product that you may have bought, you know, might not actually be available from that brand in two to three weeks. And so um, I think. You know, from a journey perspective, just just having more impact and, and um, a little bit more on control. Now, that doesn't go to say like the highs and lows of worrying about and, and looking at the whole business as a whole has been a completely different experience for me from like being at Baker and only worrying about sales, like not having to think about, you know, when we first started Pistol, like every for the first six months, you know, I was invoicing, signing contracts, onboarding, training, still selling basically by myself for the most part and still helping with a little bit of marketing here, product development. Um, so I think it's about wearing multiple hats. And then once you kind of get to scale a little bit of scale, then it's like all about prioritizing my time. And that's the one thing that like, it's a continuous, like look back and see like where, what, 
what what type of ROI can I provide pistol and like where am I best suited and then that's where I need to, to focus on and that that's been changing as we've been adding more more folks to the team yeah I always describe it to people as like you do every job in the company and I actually think that that's so helpful because then when you go to hire people you know exactly what it is that they're doing. Like where I always find myself getting tripped up in the business is when we're hiring people into roles that I've really never done before. It's so much harder to understand what they do. So like you just describing, you're doing the signing of the contracts, you're doing the invoicing, you're doing everything. Like when inevitably you hire people to do those tasks, like you know exactly where all the shortcomings are and like you can jump in and and, and fix it if need be. So in the beginning where you were the one actually going in and selling. What was the industry's response like on your first sales pitches when you were going out and saying, I'm the co-founder here and we have this new product. What was the industry's response? Yeah, so we, we launched the we launched a beta program in California and we, we focused on just the gummies category. There are a variety of reasons data-wise why we did gummies first. And at the time, we just had a deck. <laughs> so there was no product that was like, hey, we have this idea. If you think about like the times we were in, it was basically mid 2020. So like right in the peak of COVID where, you know, dispensaries basically had to have online ordering, not just for pickup, but for curbside, right? It was, it was literally the only way they could do business. So you saw this huge surge in most stores across the country, specifically in our case, California, having to have e-commerce systems. Now those systems had to be integrated with the point of sale. So you think Dutchie, iHeartJane, you know, trees, meadow, and there's some new ones that are popping up doing pretty well. Um, and so basically you need to show your live inventory on, on a menu. And so we, it was just kind of like really good timing for us based on where we get our data and kind of what we do with it. Um, that folks, I mean, the, the problem resonated with the VPs of sales that I, that we were contacting first. So like plus products, plus uh, Lucy Harold at plus was our first beta customer. She was our first annual customer, forever grateful for Lucy and plus. Um, but I think as you know, like when you start a company kind of getting that first one is the hardest one, getting the second one's the second hardest and so on and so forth. And like, as you get a little bit of traction, you know, going after really well-known brands, I think was my go-to-market strategy. Like if we can just get a couple big name brands that are respected in California, when I go to that next brand, I'm like, look, we work with X, Y, and Z. Give, give me 20 minutes to tell you why and, and how we can help you guys. That was kind of the initial, yeah. I think that's such a great piece of advice for people that are launching a business in cannabis because people are really followers in this industry. Like we've found the exact same, you know, we, we've had the exactly what you're describing. We work with X company, we help them find X 10 employees and it's an easy just box for them to check. So it's funny to hear that you've said that that's worked really well for you. Um, so, so now, at a certain point uh, along the journey, you started building out your team. How did you think about those first hires to make? Yeah, how did you think about that? Yeah, yeah. So I think when we, my first hire was in, in SDR, and that was really just like, from a sales perspective, and in, in my opinion, like you have to continue to just fill the top of the funnel. Like that is the most important part of of anything when you're thinking about how to scale sales. Is like the top of the funnel, top of the funnel, top of the funnel. So put resources towards that. And when the funnel becomes too big, you've got a problem and you need to hire more closers. That's kind of how I think about it in general and kind of the way I hire. So I went with an SDR first and um, you know that person filled the funnel very quickly for us and allowed me to basically run demos and do business and close. Then we, 
we had an intern, a data intern that we actually turned into our first CSM, which was doing our onboarding. So I started to slowly like pick apart things that were taking too much of my time and focus on, on net new revenue. After that, I actually went back to my uh, connections and I pulled Scott Mack over, who's our, our leading sales rep now at Pistol, who was our leading sales rep at Baker. And so Scott Oh, I remember Mack hearing about that guy. He was like a machine, right? Yeah, he, he still is. Um, so Scott, Scott's been at Pistol now uh, about 15 months or so. And, um, you know, we had worked together before and now it's just putting the right pieces in place. So where we're at now, I hired a, a director of sales now about 90 days ago. And that's kind of changed everything. Now my, the, the SDRs and the AEs are getting a little bit more coaching. We're implementing new process and I'm able to take a couple steps back, work on more enterprise deals and kind of like, you know, do other things that the business needs from me from a business development standpoint and product and a little bit of marketing stuff here and there. And so um, I guess the, the takeaway that I would say when you're kind of building your company from the start is just top of the funnel is the most. Because if, if you have a good product, like we close at like a, very high, you know, 40, 45% close rate. So very high from a SaaS perspective. Um, just getting people on the books is like, you know, and it's not easy when we were just selling the cannabis brands, like finding out who sells for that cannabis brand. They're not always on LinkedIn. They don't have websites. They don't have phone numbers. So we've created some different techniques to, to get in front of those folks. Yeah, speaking, I, I, let's double click here. I think the filling the top of the funnel is relevant information for anybody out there running a sales organization what are some of the tricks that you tell your sdrs to fill mm -hmm. the top of the funnel yeah so i think it's it's a couple different things we we have the benefit of having data on on every brand and, and retailer for the most part so you know we have some secret sauce that you know we don't want to share our secrets here carson but uh you know basically using our data to let the folks know that there's opportunities for them to generate revenue pretty quickly, like very actionable data. Hey, I looked at your data. There's five stores that you should be calling and prioritizing this week. Overall, I, th I think it's activity and like from an SDR perspective, in my opinion, it's all about selling the meeting. Because if you can, if you can show enthusiasm and confidence and you really, really, really believe in your product, then that first cold call isn't about trying to sell your product. It's actually just selling the meeting. Let the account executive who gets on that demo go through and actually be able to handle objections when they come. But if you try to sell your product in that first or second call, you're going to get objections and you're going to fumble and you might not be able to, to be engaged as well, you know, to, to be able to actually handle those. Now, another piece to that is like we're selling data, right? So like getting someone, you know, a tool, for example, our new retail tool launched about three or four months ago and to get a purchasing manager to like visually think about what the tool looks like and how it does when it's just data is kind of difficult. So instead of that, let's talk about like the results. Let's talk about the answer, the questions that it's going to, uh, the answers that we're going to be able to give them for the questions they may have. So, you know, my advice is just, again, just sell them. We preach this just nonstop, sell the meeting, sell the meeting, sell the meeting. So sell the meeting. I had to sell the meeting to get you on this podcast. <laughs> I, I said yes on my first one. That was, that was an easy, easy close for you. <laughs> Question. So you said you said that you guys were starting out focusing in California. You were focused on getting the big name brands on, then of course selling the meeting to get the follow-on brands to come. Have you guys continued to take a market by market strategy in terms of launching pistol data? 
Yeah, so um, one of kind of the, the differences between Pistol and some other folks out there, you know, doing things similar is we're really, really, really focused on data quality and simplicity of our tools. So I think that's the feedback we get. That's why we went deals. Really comes down to like how clean is your data? Because you can't really do analytics without, you know, clean data. And cannabis data is really hard. <laughs> There's no like UPC code like by iPhone here. Like, you know, you can track this. Apple's tracking this across the world. Um, if you think about a cannabis product, there's there's really nothing, right? You maybe have a batch number out of metric, um, but other than that, that particular product is really hard to track and it's messy. So you think about the data flow, right? It's like from the grower into metric to a distributor, down to the point of sale, up through the e-commerce stream. You can think about Pistol at the end of that, gathering all that data and then actually cleaning it even further than what's already happened throughout those stages. Um, so we started out in California, we launched a couple more West Coast markets, Colorado. I think we were up to about seven markets um, last July. Um, now we're in all 34 legal markets. We've launched two new products, um, one more of a BI kind of uh, go-to-market com competitive intelligence tool, more of a desktop version. Our first product was a very kind of sales rep mobile uh, first application. Um, and then the third product being a retail tool, but we're in, we're in all markets. We're about to launch in Canada here in the next 30 days, which we're pretty excited about. Um, and so, yeah, so we're, we've, we've expanded quick and like the last six months, things have really, um, really sped up fast for us. Yeah, and I, a lot of people are talking about how that you know maybe their sales are down and things like that. And as we were getting on, you were telling me what a great day you're having because it's the end of the month and you guys are having an all time months. So see, things seem to be ripping for pistol data. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is end of the month day. Actually, when you schedule this, I was like, wow, we're doing a podcast on the, the last day of the month. Like this is, this is like go time, right? I gotta, you know, we're trying to get deals in. We, we do a lot of team selling over here. So whether that's, I have to get on a call and try to close them or, you know, negotiate with my team, we, we try to, we try to sell as a team across the board. Um, but yeah, we're having, we're having a great month. I think that's attributed to, again, back to the top of the funnel. Um, we've changed some processes since my director of sales, Alex, started three or four months ago. Um, obviously, the new products has opened up our TAM significantly. We only used to sell to brands four months ago. We now have the ability to sell to every retailer across the country. Um, that product is picked up very, very quickly. So like within 90, 120 days, we have almost 125 doors using Pistol for Retail, which is our retail product. And so, yeah, I think another kind of thing is like with the macro economy and everyone's kind of down on cannabis, I think people still need data, you know, to our benefit. Like if you want to be more efficient, maybe you have a couple employees that are doing this already that we can actually save you money. So um, I think people still are, are willing to invest in data, especially with our tools. Like it's a very objective uh, ROI, you know, um, to be able to look at it and understand like what's actually happening locally around you. And I, I would imagine another part of the, the being a founder that's different for you uh, than, than being just, just solely responsible for sales is fundraising and funding. And so where is Pistol Data in the fundraising journey? Yes, yeah, so we closed our seed round with um, Casa Verde Capital, as, as you know. We see each other once once a year at our luncheon. Um, and that great was... Great luncheon, great food. That was a great luncheon. And that was in... Um, a great, great food, for sure. Uh, that was October of 21, right? Yeah, October of 21. I'm getting... Wow, it's 23 already. Um, and so, you know, from a capital perspective, we're, we're, in a, we're in a good position. Again, back to, like, timing when you start a startup and, like, your idea, timing... It's, it's really important um, 
kind of when you go to market and is the market ready for your type of tool? I see a lot of companies that I think are good ideas that are getting into cannabis, but on some, and I won't name them, but they might be a little bit early, right? For like, if you think about all these payment companies that are just, there's a million of them, like, are they too early? I don't know, you know, like, we'll, we'll see. But but um, I think we, we've, we're we grateful, you know, for, for when we did raise and, um, we're in, a, we're in a good position right now. And that's the, other, that's the other piece of it, too, on the timing front. Like, there's a little bit of luck involved, too, right? If you were somebody that was trying to raise capital in 2020 or 2021, it was significantly more achievable than folks out there trying to raise right now. I mean, that was just so, so to your point. You guys raised at a great time. You launched the product at a great time. I, I always say to people that are starting a company, like, you need stars to align is, is the reality here. Like, there's, there's skill, but there's also a lot of luck. And I, that's why I'm always grateful. I always feel... Like, I'm a lot luckier than I am. I'm a, what's the saying I'm looking for? I feel like I have more luck than smarts, right? And uh, who knows if that's true or not, but it seems like at Pistol Data, at least a lot of the stars have aligned combined with you guys just working really hard and putting the right team in place. It sounds like things are going super well. Definitely, definitely. It's, uh, what's the quote? It's like when uh, hard work meets opportunity. I don't know if that's it, but. I'm so uh, bad at the quotes. Luck. Like, <laughs> I, I know I'm so bad at the at the sayings that I have to yeah. kind of try to stay away from them, especially now that I'm doing this podcast because I really embarrass myself. <laughs> but on on the on the personal note, what's been the hardest lesson to learn in the cannabis? Let's start about just in the cannabis industry. What's been a hardest lesson? Yeah, you know, not not for me personally. I think everyone's learning this lesson now that you don't want to put. You don't want to put the cart before the horse on legalization. I think that a lot of folks, you know, kind of did that. And so hoping that the, the Biden administration would do something significant for the industry that would kind of pick up that obviously hasn't happened. And who knows if it'll happen? I'm not very bullish on it uh, personally, at least in the next year or so. And so I think that that's just been a big lesson, like in cannabis in general. I also think um, for folks that are like exiting cannabis or folks that are trying to get in, like you got to have thick skin to like want to do this. This isn't, I, I think everyone like in my experience doing this almost eight years, even like people in Kentucky or friends or family, like they really, really have this like perception of like, oh, you're going to be a millionaire working in cannabis. And it's just, it's not it. <laughs> um, you got to really love this industry. And like, you really do, you have to, you have to be willing to go through the peaks and the valleys of, of what we've dealt with basically the last eight years. We're in a valley right now. I'm still extremely optimistic. I know what we're doing is impactful. I know that legislation will eventually change. I know that if you can survive in advance, you're in a good spot. There's going to be a, you know, that's going to change. Um, and you know, you need to do it for the right reasons. Like I, I don't, I love the industry. I kind of have branded myself that way, but I don't even know if I could get a job outside of cannabis at this point, right? It might, I've kind of branded myself. So, um, and I'm cool with it because I, I love the space and I, you know, it's actually making like a real impact. That's why I'm proud to work in cannabis. Na the name of the podcast. Yeah. I also think that people at this, I, I'm super optimistic about the people that are still in the space at this point that are down to keep going. Because at this point, people have gotten pretty beat up in this industry, right? Especially you've been working on this since 2014. I mean, we started Graduana in 2015, rebranded to Vanks in 2016. Everything has been far from rainbows and sunshine at Vanks. And I, 
I think the further along in your journey that you go, you become more confident in, a, in being able to say that, that it hasn't all been great, right? And I think that a lot of us have gotten beat up and not done everything the right way and like learned a lot of lessons the hard way. But for the people that are still here, still sitting here, still in the game, still ready to go and fired up, I'm super optimistic about them. So I know there's a lot of people out there that are saying, oh, like, I don't know if we're going to be able to make it. Like, you, I always, like, I have a sign in my office that says you didn't come this far just to come this far. And I do feel like people like you and other founders in the space live and breathe that mentality. And, like, it's going to keep us going. But I'm curious, like, what do you think it is about the people that have made it this far? Like, what do you think that they all have in common? Because there's a handful of people that have been at this for almost a decade at this point. Like, what do you think that that is? Is it just stamina? Is it passion for cannabis? Like, what is that trait? I think that they have a real connection with the the community that cannabis is. And I think that gets overlooked a lot. Like, the, the community within the cannabis industry from a business perspective is, and I'm biased, but very, very different than other industries. Um, and I think it's because of what you just said. Like, when you go through hard things together and you know the person next to you and the person over there and all these other people are going through similar things, like we're all startups, no matter if you're a public billion dollar company, like you're still a startup, you're still making mistakes, you're still figuring it out. Um, and when you have that, it creates this like really interesting camaraderie, even like with competitor companies, you're like, yeah, I still respect you because like you're, you're doing, you know, you're a trailblazer like you're doing exactly what I'm doing and we're both just trying to make it work and you know maybe there's maybe there's enough for everyone to go around and it's it's not so much about like this fierce like crazy competition it's more like this camaraderie that's just I don't know I just think it's so different than, than other spaces right and I also think like just that mutual north star that everybody has mm -hmm. right and just making cannabis accessible yeah. to anybody having federal legislation having it decriminalized Social equity is, I think also the social equity component of our industry has brought a lot of people together full circle. And so it just feels like there's this North star that everybody has, even if they're competitors. Like I could sit in a room with one of our competitors and we both have the same North star for the industry. I feel like that piece of it is something that's unique to other spaces too. Yeah, totally. It's like we're, we're working towards something like name another industry that's similar, like alcohol for like, what are they working towards? Right? Like they're working towards keeping, keeping cannabis, uh, not, you know, moving past them eventually or like non-alcoholic beverages. That's what they're working towards. I just like in general, like we're actually working towards something that's like pretty tangible, like when you think about it. Right. So, yeah, I, I totally. And agree even like that. the name of this podcast, Proud to Work in Cannabis, like I haven't heard any podcast proud to work in banking. Yeah, no. Proud to no. work in <laughs> oil and gas. I mean, people might be proud to work in banking. Maybe. 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 I don't I, I don't know. I haven't heard too many people it's, say that. Yeah. So my, I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, people that want to get into this industry, I always say this, I've heard you say it, the industry is never going to be this small again. Today there's around 450,000 people employed in this space. There's expected to be a million people employed over the next five years. So the industry is still in its infancy. It's never going to be as small. Again, today in a decade, we're going to be sitting here having people on the podcast who just joined in that helped us, um, you know, write the story of cannabis. What advice do you have for people getting into the game today? Because there's still yeah. plenty of opportunity and plenty of time and we need more people to come in. So what advice do you have for those folks? I, th I think my first advice is you got to kill your ego a bit. I, I see so many times people 
you know, are applying for a role at Pistol and, and they think that just because they've done stuff in other industries, they're like either, you know, overqualified. So like my first advice, if you really, really, really want to get in cannabis, you need to kill your ego and be willing and open to starting out in a different level position, quote unquote, right? Than like what you think you've done in your past history. And that's not to say like, I'm, I, I don't think cannabis is so unique that like you can't, you know, other business practice. I'm not on that. I'm not one of those sayers. Like I know some people are on that side. I'm not at all. I actually think that like a lot of basic business practices that are used in other verticals and stuff are definitely similar. Now, cannabis still is unique. You need to understand like how the supply chain works and like there's a lot of nuances to it. But I think cannabis companies as a whole are hesitant to hire in some cases folks that are outside of the industry. Um, and one, I think as a cannabis company, you have to be more open to bringing folks in, but also, um, you know, just killing your ego a little bit. I get, I get a lot of like, uh, emails, people applying that, you know, they're looking for something that may not be available in cannabis yet. There's a lot of sacrifice there too. Like, again, back to like the startup thing. I think you wrote something on LinkedIn that I liked about like, Hey, you signed up to work for a startup, right? Like, just because it's in cannabis, you know, it's a startup. It doesn't matter what cannabis company it is. Like, again, they're, they're all startups. So don't have the same expectations um, as working a, a more established business. Like, you actually have to be cool with ambiguity. And that's, so those are two things. Like, kill your ego and be very okay with ambiguity. And I feel like when we talked about lessons we learned, or I'll speak for myself, maybe you can speak, like, I've had to kill my ego, right? Like, yeah things go well for a, for a minute and you're like, wow, I'm really good. And then you realize, you know, then things don't go well and you're like, whoa. So I, you know, I can say, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I feel like I've had to kill my ego in not even just coming into cannabis, but just business in general. And I've found that the most successful people that I've met on this journey have no ego whatsoever. And so I would say like, that's a lesson that I've learned in just watching from the best. Um, and you know, obviously same, same is true for you. Yeah, in terms of, I, I know what you're referring to on, on LinkedIn, and it was funny because it had some, I got some positive responses, some negative responses, but what I was saying is that when you join a startup, there's so many amazing things, right? You get the chance to advance your career faster than you ever would have. I mean, look at somebody like you, right? You joined Baker as a sales rep. Next thing you know, you're running the entire show, and then you get recruited to go and be a co-founder. I mean, you're the perfect example of the case study that I'm talking about. You took big steps back, you put your ego aside, and you worked your way up, and now you're the founder of a business. So, And that opportunity came from working at a startup. So like, that's one of the amazing opportunities. But there's also like massive trade-offs. Like you're not going to get a huge 401k match. Like there's a lot of trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs is actually job security. I mean, startups, 99% of them fail. And so if you're versus like, there's big corporations where it's hard to get fired. Like I was talking to a friend who works at, I was talking to a friend who um, works at McKinsey and she was like, it would literally be hard for me to get fired here versus like, that's just, so, so that's pretty good job security. If you're like, I have to actively try to get fired. That's not the case. In, that's not the case at a startup. A startup, a lot of times is venture backed. You raise money and you have 18 months to figure it out. And if you don't, if you don't hit those targets, you don't get funded and you go down. Like there is no job security in startups. And so um, that's just the reality. And like some people don't want to face that reality. So that's a piece of advice I always give people of like, you got to know what you're signing up for, but the upside could be huge. You could end up like Taylor, start as a 
sales rep and now is co-founder of one of the most successful data, data companies in the space, but you took a huge, huge risk and made a ton of sacrifices along the way to get there. You didn't just wake up one day a co-founder. Yeah, definitely not. No, I, I totally agree with that. I think when I chat with like, we have interns at Pistol and when I chat with them about like my advice on like what they want to do in their career and things like that, I look at I look at working at a startup as almost like going to like get your MBA in some cases. Like you want to get on a small team, you want to have, you know, you want the founders to be willing to share information and insight and you want to be able to do multiple things cuz like when you're coming out of college, you don't really know what you're doing, like right? I, some people do, but most people if you go into a traditional like, you know, go work for a startup whether it's in sales, marketing, customer success, product, etc., you know, you don't, being able to go somewhere and wear multiple hats and then be like, oh, that's my passion. Like I enjoy that the most. That's where I actually think what benefits people the most to go work at startups. You get to do multiple things and not just like, you know, you go work at Salesforce as a sales rep, like you're gonna be a sales, Salesforce sales rep and likely there for a long time. Um, at least from my experience with, with folks that I know, so. So Taylor, as a co-founder, I always ask other, other founders like, what do you do in your free time? What do you do for fun? Yeah, so I, I'm a big skier, so I live in Denver. Um, I definitely ski a lot. Um, I like to work out. I like to go hiking. I'm like your classic Colorado guy, you know, Patagonia, water bottle, skis, <laughs> hiking boots. Um, I don't drive a Subaru, so there's that stereotype's not there. But um, yeah, I like to, like to be outdoors. I like to be outdoors. I like to travel. Um, that's about it, you know. Trying try not to think about work all the time and taking a little time off to have that nice work life balance is a, a 2023 goal for me. So it's going well so far this month. Oh, that's a good goal. And it actually leads me into my last question for you, which is just what are you looking the most forward to in 2023? So for 2023, I'm looking, I, I, I'm really excited not to see companies fail, but more to see which ones are the most resilient. So I don't- That's an epic way to company. say, that's an epic yeah. way to make that statement. <laughs> I don't want to see companies fail. That's that's horrible. I would I actually- don't think that at all. But I do, I do really would like to see like, you know, you hear about companies, you see press releases, you've, you know, you've been around the block, you know how this goes, like you think a company's doing really, really well. And on the surface, it might seem that way. Um, but in reality, maybe they're not and you hear rumors and all this. And so I want to see kind of after 2023, who's, who's got grit, and who's who's going into 24 with like a lot of optimism and in a position of strength. And, um, you know, I'm grateful, confident, hopeful that we'll be we'll be one of those companies. Oh, absolutely. It's it's funny that you said that because we had our executive coach in town last week. He did this awesome workshop with our team. And one of the exercises that everybody had to do was in advance. They had to think about like a perception that they had in their mind that they ultimately like changed their mind on something. And it ended up going into this cool workshop that we did which I won't get into all the details on, but you know what, my, mine was actually, I used to really believe all the headlines that I would read and believe that like fundraising meant really good company. So I would read, this company just raised $100 million and I would think to myself like, that company is a huge success versus like these days, it's like, it's so much more interesting to think about the companies who are generating a hundred million in revenue with profits, with a sustainable business model, with a team versus like, frankly, like I hate to say it, but it's not, it's much easier to raise a hundred million dollars than it is to make a hundred million dollars and be profitable. So like I had the same thought of you as like, I would see these headlines and I'd be like, Oh my God, this company just raised a hundred million dollars. Like 
they have it together, they must be so successful. Like my perception on that has totally changed. And so like, forget about the headlines. Like, let's see who's in the game with a sustainable business model that's profitable and like rip roaring. And I'm all in on team pistol data. And I know you guys will be one of them. You've been so lean and mean since the very beginning. And I'm just so excited to see what you guys do. I really appreciate that. This has been fun. It's been fun coming on the podcast. So thank you. If people want to find you, they want to follow you on whether it be social media, they want to come work for you, they want to learn from you. How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, of course, just Taylor Jones. I'm kind of hard to find with a common name, but uh, search Pistol Data and, and you can find me. And then just go to our website, www.pistoldata.com, or shoot me an email, just uh, taylor at pistoldata.com. Sounds great. Well, Taylor, thank you so much. I know we'll be seeing you soon, and I'm excited to do our follow-up podcast to talk about uh, the winners and the people with the most grit at the end of the year. <laughs> Definitely awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.